Well, if you have your Bibles, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. This morning we are picking back up in our series uh, in the Song of Ascents, the Songs of Ascents. And we're going to be looking this morning both at Psalm 122 and also at Psalm 123. As you're turning there, I want to ask you, I want to begin by asking you a question. Uh, a question of introspection, if you will. What was it that brought you here this morning? What was it that actually brought you here today? Why on a Sunday morning did you choose to get up, to get dressed, to get in your car, and to drive here? As I pose that question to you, let it be known, first and foremost, that I am incredibly glad to see you all. I'm glad that you came. Uh, especially, uh, it, it always fills my heart to be joined and gathered with the saints, especially with you, but I, 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 I suppose that you probably expect to hear something like that coming from the pastor. So in asking you this question, my, my goal and what I want to know is ask, in asking you what motivated you to be here today is to get at the reason why you are here. Um, perhaps you came simply out of habit. This is what you do every Sunday morning, and so you didn't have to think about it. You just woke up and you came. Uh, that's certainly not a bad thing. After all, the, the gathering of, of the church is something that God has commanded us to do. And so it should be our habit to obey. Uh, perhaps you are here, though, this morning out of more of a sense of obligation. You know what Hebrews 10.25 says, that we must not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. And though there is probably something you would rather be doing this morning, here you are out of a sense of obedience, feeling more obligated than actually wanting to be here. Now, perhaps you are here because you are tired and you are hungry and you are eager and ready to be filled with the Word of God and to enjoy the company of God's people. Now, perhaps you've come for another reason. Maybe it's a mixture of what I've already said. Maybe it's for a reason I haven't said, something totally different. It stands that our, the motives of our worship matter. They say a lot about the condition of our hearts. And God has made it very clear that He cares about the heart of our worship, not just the actions of our worship. God is worthy of our worship, not just the forms and the motions of it, but the sort of worship that comes from a heart of love. We were made to worship Him. We were made to be filled with the knowledge of Him, to be in a relationship with Him. The chief end of man, it has been said, is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. There is a false dichotomy in many people's minds which separates joy from obedience, which says that they are different things, totally irrelated. And consequently, uh, they, they separate joy from worship. It's the sort of idea that, that feeds the notion that Sunday morning is about doing our duty to God and then we can go home and we can find happiness elsewhere. A joyless Christianity is not a true Christianity. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is a distributor of joy. And the greatest joy to be had is not in the gifts that He gives, but in the relationship with Him, who is the great giver of those things. Now the theme of our series through the Psalms of Ascent is hoping in the heavenly city. 
And Psalm 122 and Psalm 123 advance this theme by teaching God's people to hope in the supreme joy that comes with knowing God and being gathered together with his people. What I love about these psalms, especially when we read them back to back, is there's just an incredible amount of realism here. Uh, Living in a fallen world, engaged in a fight against our fallen human nature, we all know that joy and the happiness of our heart is fickle. It it comes and it goes. It, It ebbs and flows like waves on a beach. I can't say that the priorities and the motives of my heart are always rightly ordered. I can't say that my heart is always happy or that I always come to church with the right motivation. God knows this. And I believe that he has inspired these two psalms in particular to, in part, equip us to find lasting joy in him, the sort of joy that fuels right worship. So let's begin by reading what he has to say to us. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading Psalm 122 into Psalm 123. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem! Built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. A song of ascent. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Do you know that God actually commands his people to be joyful? Do you know that he commands it? Psalm 32, verse 11, puts it very directly. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the ancient world, it would be unthinkable to come into the presence of a king with a sour face. Uh, To drag down the mood of the king with your troubles would be taking your own life into your hands. Uh, The biblical call to be glad, the command to rejoice is different than simply just putting on a happy face and pretending that all is good. The joy that God commands is a joy that he gives. He is the sort of king that wipes the tears from the eyes of his people. He is the sort of God who bears our burdens, who restores the broken and makes us new. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of the Lord our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God glories in the joy of his people. He exalts in filling his people with joy. For the glory of his own name, he replaces people's suffering with joy and gladness in his own presence. And we see this divine priority in the message of these two psalms of ascents. And so the main idea of these psalms, and therefore the main idea of this sermon, is a certain command to find joy in the presence of God. So the main idea this morning is simply this. Come to the house of the Lord to be filled with joy. Come to the house of the Lord to be filled with joy. And at our time, I want to show you four ways that God fills his people with joy. First, he makes us glad to come into his house. He makes us glad to come into his house. Second, he unites us together as one people to worship at his throne. He unites us as one people to worship at his throne. Thirdly, he brings us peace. He brings us peace. And finally, he sustains us in patience. He sustains us in patience. Well, first, we want to see how God establishes and fills his people with joy by making us glad to come into his house. Psalm 122 is the first of the songs of ascents which are directly attributed to King, to King David. Uh, David wrote this song with a purpose, with an intention of bringing the people of Israel to worship God in Jerusalem with the right heart and the right attitude. It's an important song. Not only does it beckon God's people to come into his presence to worship him in the right way, it also marks the fulfillment of God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 12 about the centralization of the worship of God. Now, it may be strange to think it, uh, depending on how familiar you are with the history of the Old Testament. Uh, up until David, the Israelites were actually worshiping God each in a way that seemed according to him, uh, right according to him, in the high places that were scattered throughout Israel. Each person had their own thing. They did their own thing. They weren't coming really to a specific place unless they came to the tabernacle, which itself moved around. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God tells the people that after he had brought them into the land, after he had established them there and given them peace, he was going to appoint a permanent place for the nation to come and to worship him. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, Moses tells the people, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present. So this command from Moses anticipated the rest that God said he was going to give his people in the promised land. It was the culmination of his bringing the nation of Israel there in the land of Canaan to dwell there in his direct presence as his people. But it was not until David was king that God finally revealed the place of his choosing, Jerusalem. 
At the time when David wrote this song, there would have been plenty of people who were used to worshiping God in different places. This song was intended to bring the people together to worship God in one place in obedience to his word in Deuteronomy 12. And so it stood, it had an important role and place in its immediate historical uh, context in which it was written, but it also stood for future generations calling them, the children of those people, to come and to worship at the temple, the temple which was then built by David's son, Solomon. The focus that we see here on location is really intended to serve another purpose, which is to instruct us in how we are to come to worship God. And so we find in the opening uh, of this psalm a major theme, which is to come to the house of the Lord with gladness. And David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, if we can this opening line to Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7, and then in verse 12, uh, we see that uh, we see some similarities where Moses says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And then you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants. So what's the connection you see between Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 12 and now here in David's psalm? Isn't it joy? Isn't it gladness? In both the prophecy and the fulfillment, joy is the centerpiece. Joy in the presence of the Lord. What we see in this place Uh, that in this place, this place that God had appointed for his people to come and to worship him, was intended to be a place where he filled them with joy and gladness. And just the mention of going to the house of the Lord in worship, David says, was enough to make his heart glad. Given that God had revealed Jerusalem to be the chosen place for his people to come and to meet with him, In David's time, uh, you can imagine why David, the king, would have been so glad to hear others actually say to him, let us go to the house of the Lord and worship. Uh, This was a major shift, an important shift, where the nation was no longer offering sacrifices in places that seemed good to them, but were coming to the place that God had provided. We can expect that David's gladness, both as a king and as a lover of God, was motivated by the way that God had fulfilled his word and by the way that God's people were responding to his work. The reason Sunday mornings bring me joy is not just that I get to see all of you, but because I get to rejoice in seeing God's people respond to him with due affection and praise. It fills my heart with joy when I see you walking in here and rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. There is joy in the assembling of God's people when they come to worship Him. Even now, as we wait on the day when we will worship Him together in the fullness of His presence. Isn't that the promise of the doxology we read so often in Jude, uh, verses 24 and 25, where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God's house 
is a house of joy and is a house of gladness because there is joy in his presence. Notice that David doesn't say, I made myself glad. Gladness is, was something of a spontaneous response in his heart to the presence of God. Christian joy, let's be clear, Christian joy is not just putting a smile on your face and coming to church. It's finding joy for your soul in the presence of God with his people. It's receiving true gladness and satisfaction in the face of Christ, our Savior, who has redeemed us and who ushers us to come into the throne of God. The second way that God makes, fills his people with joy is by making us one people in worship before his throne. He makes us one people of worship before his throne. Now David was glad to see the people of Israel come to worship God in Jerusalem. And as we look at what he has to say here about Jerusalem in particular, we see that there are three themes which build on each other to make the point of how God uh, fills his people with joy by bringing them together in worship at his throne. First, we have the theme of unity. The theme of unity. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, David writes. A nation that is divided will certainly fall, and a city that is at odds with itself is vulnerable to attack. As David describes Jerusalem in verses 3 and 4, we find a city that is secure, that everything is set in its right place, and we find a people who are unified. Israel was made of 12 tribes. Each had its allotted place in the promised land. And even as God appointed a place for each tribe to live, so he had also appointed a place for them to come and to worship. And so in coming to Jerusalem, to the place he had appointed to do that, they were coming together from all of their places together as one people, unified for one purpose. A rope consists of many strands, individual strands. But its true strength comes from when those strands are woven together. Each of us comes from unique backgrounds and walks of life. Oh, one of the things I, uh, I don't know, you can judge for yourselves. One of the things I love to brag on about our church in particular, about what God has done here, is that you each are from such different backgrounds. You each have different interests, different jobs, different things you do throughout the week, and yet you come together. Because you're unified in one message. And you come together unified for one purpose in worship. And it is a beautiful thing. Like a stained glass window with its individual pieces making up one beautiful picture of the work of Christ. We are not always in total agreement with each other. But there is a unity among us which brings us together as we worship God and the power of the gospel to make that to make us a unified people is expressed in the way that people from all over the globe gather together each Sunday to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Which brings us to consider our, the second theme of this section, which is a theme of thankful, obedient worship. The activity that is bringing all these people together, the, the thing that is uniting them, is worship and obedience to God. In verse 4, David stresses how this coming to Jerusalem and going to the house of the Lord there is a response to God's word, to his commandment. Now, David is thinking about what Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy 12. And so as he thinks about the word, he's rejoicing as he sees people coming together to obey 
what God has revealed in his word. You'll notice that David doesn't speak of this worship of God merely as an obligation or as a drudgery. As the tribes go up uh, in obedience to God's decree, they're going up to give thanks to him. Uh, True thankfulness is motivated by a heart that is full of joy. You all know how to tell the difference between a person who is truly thankful for something that you've given them and someone who says, thank you, and then moves on. You, You pick up on it. You know when there's truly a heart that is just overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy and when someone is saying that because they don't want to offend you. True thankfulness, the sort of thankfulness that David describes here, is the sort of rejoicing that comes from a heart that has been filled with the awe of the glory and the splendor of God. God is not after empty words of praise. He is after thankful hearts which delight to sing Him praise and rejoice in Him. I think back to what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4. He says that the Father is seeking after true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. So the location of worship, especially now that Christ has come, really is of secondary importance to the action and to the heart of worship. The third theme of this particular section is the theme of kingship. The unity of the people in worship of God is made full in joy before the throne of God's anointed king. In verse 5, David says, There, that's in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Now, this is unique. This is interesting and very telling. Now, as we hear David say this, uh, thrones of judgment, that sounds super ominous, doesn't it? But for God's people, the throne of the king is the best news. A righteous king ensures that his people will thrive and flourish. In the days of the judges, the people of Israel did whatever seemed right to them. And as you read the book of Judges, you find that it threw the land into chaos. Each time after the author tells us of what happened in the days of the judges, he ends it with the line, And there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Under David, God's anointed king, the people were brought together in peace, unity, and prosperity. His throne worked for their good. Not only this, but we find that uh, God had actually promised David that he would have an offspring who would rule on his throne forever. So when we see David talking about the thrones of his house in this psalm, he's not just trying to amplify his own standing. He's speaking about a promise that God had made to make his people flourish through a Davidic king. We know from the New Testament that the fulfillment of that covenant promise came through Jesus Christ. As David's son and David's Lord, Jesus reigns forever and ever. And just as David speaks about the unity of the people of Israel, unified in one purpose to worship God in thanksgiving, so we find that this psalm looks forward to the throne of Christ who has made us one in him. He has rescued us from sin and from the curse of death. He has broken down the dividing wall between God and man. 
The benefits of his work have gone out into all the world in the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit so that it stands that everyone who hears the gospel and believes in Christ will be saved. When we come together to worship as a church, we come together as members of the house of Christ and God fills our hearts with joy having made us one people in Christ, having rescued us from the eternal danger of our souls, having set up the throne of King Jesus that will never be moved, a throne which is upheld in righteousness forever and forever. His throne fills us with joy, not with dread, because the penalty that was due our sins has been paid. And so for everyone who believes in Him, there is rest to be found because they are called citizens of his kingdom. Now the third way we see that God fills his people with joy is that he brings us peace. He fills us with joy by bringing us peace. As you look over verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 122, the key theme, the word that appears over and over and over is the word peace. David makes Jerusalem the central focus of his desire for peace. In verse 6, he, pray, he tells us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar, if any of you are Hebrew scholars, you will know that Jerusalem actually means the city of peace. David's desire is that the state of Jerusalem would match its name, that it wouldn't just be a, a city of peace in name only, but that it would flourish as a city of peace where peace is a reality in the presence of God. He says, May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now as we look over the trajectory of the biblical story, we find that Jerusalem, it really is a focal point in the Bible, not just because it was the place where God made his special presence dwell there in the temple, not just because that was the city of David's throne, the city of kings, not just because it, it plays a strategic role in the history of Israel, but because this is the place where God actually made peace with us through the work of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Christian, that is your inheritance. Peace in Christ, who killed the hostility that existed between God and man 
by himself going to the cross and suffering there. The peace that David prays for in Psalm 122 has been established in a much greater way in Christ. Our hope is not in a physical city. It's in a heavenly one. A city where God's people dwell in God's city, beholding His glory with unveiled faces. In Psalm 120, which we looked at last week, we felt the anxiety of the sojourner who longs to be home, who longs for peace as he dwells amongst the people who are for war. That longing for peace has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in the work of Christ who gave his own blood for us as a sign and the seal of a new and better covenant, a covenant of everlasting peace. And that peace is what gives every true believer lasting and enduring joy. We know that even while we have trouble in this life, Christ is our peace. He is our sure and steady anchor. And so while we may not be glad in our current set of circumstances, we may remain a joyful people because we've been given an abiding peace through the work of Christ. Which leads us to consider the fourth way that God fills his people with joy by sustaining us with patience. Psalm 122 and Psalm 123 are like night and day, aren't they? like the sun and the moon. Psalm 122 is a song of joy. You just don't get higher than that. Psalm 123 is a psalm that is uttered from the very depths of despair. It's It's a cry to God to intervene. As we look at these two psalms, they are so very different. So... As I struggled this week, I struggled this week wondering if I had set myself a bad challenge by saying we're going to do two psalms at a time. I wondered if I should just preach them separate. But the more I thought about these two psalms and and considered the order that they were intentionally put in and what they have to say, the more I have actually come to appreciate the combined message that they have for us. You see, we don't always find ourselves in happy circumstances, do we? The sunny paradise of Psalm 122 just gets rocked by this hurricane of suffering in Psalm 123. And I have said a lot about joy and gladness and peace this morning, well aware that many of you, or some of you, if not many of you, did not wake up this morning feeling very joyful. Just because you're at church doesn't mean that the bills just go away, or that you're not going to get a phone call from work this afternoon. Or that the stress that is at home is just going to be relieved. The weekly troubles we face in this world will threaten to wring us out like a sponge. God means for his people to be filled with joy. And so, we find that he calls us, he beckons us to come into his house, to rest in his presence, and to find a gladness that is able to withstand the wear and tear of a week that's full of trouble. What I've come to appreciate about these two psalms, especially about the way that they're ordered, is the way that they just account for what it's like to go from the joys of worshiping God in his house amongst God's people to the lows of a Monday morning at work. We can really relate to this. Uh, Psalm 122 beckons each of us to come to the house of the Lord to be filled with joy. And Psalm 123 is the moan of a beleaguered heart asking to be delivered. So, If you have ever left church feeling joyful and motivated and glad and excited and then you wake up Monday morning and you just get hit in the mouth, this psalm is for you. 
the joy of Christ, the joy that God gives his people, isn't a joy that just disappears when the storm clouds roll in. It's a joy that he sustains because he is a merciful savior of his people even in the midst of their troubles. Look at verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Sounds a bit like what we've already read in Psalm 120, doesn't, 121, doesn't it? Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now obviously these are words from a troubled soul who looking for help. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist cries out to God, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the, of the proud. On the surface, it may seem like Psalm 122 and Psalm 123 have nothing in common with each other, but that is a false impression. You see, the same God who makes the heart of his people glad with his presence the same God who fills his people with joy as he unites them together in worship before the throne of Christ. The same God who has secured our peace with him is the same God to which the psalmist here cries out, Have mercy on us. Psalm 123, I find, accounts for the complexity of what it means to live in a world that's full of suffering. We don't know what sort of contempt or scorn that the psalmist is speaking of here exactly, but we do know what it's like to find ourselves in a desperate situation, to long for the days when our hearts were glad and joy was easy. We know what it's like to be at the mercy of the proud. One of the great joys of God's people is knowing that He hears us when we cry to Him. Our joy endures because it's not contingent on our circumstances. Rejoice always. Pray without, ce without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First Thessalonians five sixteen through nineteen. How how do you do that? How do you, how do you give thanks to God when circumstances are awful? How do you rejoice in the good times and in the bad? How do you face times of plenty and peace and times of danger in need of joy? Well, we find joy in every circumstance because our happiness is never dictated to us by our situation. Rather, it is ensured for us because we find joy in our God. Listen to the way that the psalmist brings this trouble to God, asking him to intervene. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Now, there are three things about this Statement, these, these statements from the psalmist that I want to point out to you which I find instructive to us and how we find joy in God in the midst of troubling circumstances. First of all, remember who your father is. Remember who your father is. The psalmist here finds joy and comfort in knowing that God is enthroned in the heavens. Now, it's, this is a common way we find biblical writers talking uh, when they want to draw attention to the supreme authority of God. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115.3. He does all that he pleases. When Jesus stood before Pilate, listening to him, 
crow about how he had authority to save him or to kill him. Jesus corrected him and responded, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. When Jesus was at the very pit of despair, when he was treated with such great contempt and scorn, while the crowds that welcomed him into Jerusalem sneered and spit at him as the soldiers beat his kingly face and the blows from the flogging rained over his body, even as the nails were placed in his hands and his feet, he remained steadfast and sure. We are told by the author of Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. How do you do that? He endured that shame and that pain because it was his delight to do the will of his Father. And because he endured, we have been saved. Because Christ has conquered, he has made us brothers. Christian, look up from the trials and the suffering and remember that the one who holds authority over all things is your loving Father. He will deliver you with great joy. Second, the second way we do this is we wait on God. Wait on God. How tempting is it in the midst of suffering to do everything that is possible, everything in our power to get out of it? How easy it is in the midst of suffering to act rashly, selfishly, and without regard for what God is doing through the suffering that he has allowed to come in our lives. The highest priority of our lives is not to avoid suffering. In Matthew 5, Jesus blesses those who suffer for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. He tells us that we shall be comforted. This takes great faith in the priorities and in the power of God. He tells us that he is working all things, not some things, all things together for our good. Here in Psalm 123, we learn what it looks like to trust that promise. I love the picture here. Like a servant that is looking to his master or a maid to his mistress, so we wait on God, our King. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is the potter and we are the clay. And we are not always aware of what God is doing. But we have been given his sure promise that he is in control. So, there are some instances when we need to act. But sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, the best thing to do is to wait on God to remember that he is in control and to trust his perfect purposes. Thirdly, the third way that we find joy, even in the midst of difficult situations, is to trust in God's sure mercy. We trust in God's sure mercy. In Romans 8, 31-39, Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. How? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation, that covers everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's mercy is sure. We know it's sure because we have the evidence of the cross and the resurrection. If God has given us his son, we can trust that he will indeed see us through to the end. The servant does not need to know every plan and purpose that his master has. The soldier does not need to know the ultimate plan that the general has. Their duty, their job, is to be obedient and to trust that the master who is good will see through to the end what he has started. It is so hard to remain content in the midst of suffering. We want to be rid of it now. But God is a God who perfects His wisdom and His strength, exalting His glory by working in ways that the human mind cannot even imagine. Through the cross of Christ, He is exalting Him as Lord over all, as the hope of every person who trusts in Him. We will have joy in every circumstance when we learn, like Christ, to trust in the sure mercy of God at every time. As we wait on Him and He delivers us, our hearts will be made full because we will know how much He really cares for us and we will see firsthand the astonishing power of His, of his hand. So God means for you to have a joyful heart. Not a heart that's full of joy that you manufacture, but a joy that you find in His presence. He has provided that joy for us through the work of Jesus Christ. So whatever motivated you to come in here this morning, I'm glad you did. And I hope that as we spent this time in Psalm 122 and 123, that you've at least tasted the enduring joy that God has secured for you. May God give us grace to press on through every circumstance to fill our hearts with the cool grace and peace that flows from the fountain of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have established your perfect plan, your perfect will. That you have worked with all power and wisdom. That you have accomplished what, what my, no mind has ever imagined. That you have worked in such a way as to exalt your supreme glory in Christ for the world to see. We thank you, Father, that you have set your sights on making our joy full in Christ. And we pray that you would give us the strength uh, to, to bear in every circumstance, whether it is good, whether it is bad, that we would trust in you and know you. I pray, Father, that as we set our sights and our hearts and we build on these very sure promises, that you would sustain us and keep us, that you would fill us with your joy as we wait on the day when we will finally be gathered to you to rejoice in your direct presence. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.